Hello, and welcome to Step Into Light. I'm Laura Barton. And I'm Michelle Jones. And today we are covering the three books of John and the book of Jude. Our Come From Follow Me manual's title for this week's lesson is God is Love. Which is no surprise that that is the title. I don't think I've seen the word love used more in a series of scriptures than I have as we read these scriptures this week. Yes, and I am grateful that last week we got to talk about so many of these same themes, love and light and truth, because I think if we did not, we may have been stuck in John chapter one for like a whole hour. So the concept of love and light and truth is what we'll be addressing at first. And let's talk about John, the author of these books. So this is John of Zebedee of Peter, James, and John. He wrote the Gospels of John. He also wrote Revelation, which we will read next week. And this is said to be, these books are said to be the later of his writings. So we're almost getting to the end of the first century. And the thing that kind of combines the book of John and the book of Jude is that they are addressing these issues that are coming with the apostasy. And as we talk about them today, we can see that theme. But I also was thinking about how personal apostasy is something we think about all the time. And that as we keep the covenants and obey the commandments and follow church leaders and partake of the sacrament, we are blessed that we have that today. And we have modern revelation. But the word of God, prayer, loving one another and serving are also things that can help us stay strong when personal apostasy may be something that, well, not that we're dealing with, but when there's issues that arise, we can remember these same themes that John is saying to these primitive saints that they may not have the same leadership that we have at this time, but there are definitely themes that keep us grounded in our testimony and connected to to Jesus Christ. And I also loved, much like when we were discussing Peter last week, that we are back to writings of an apostle that was a first hand, I think the term eyewitness was used last week. And there's something really beautiful about reading these words that John is sharing with us and sharing the nature of the Savior whom he walked with. And I think that is beautiful. I know that um, from what I understand and from what I've read before, it seems like John particularly had a close relationship with the Savior. And so what a like really beautiful thing to be able to learn more about the Savior directly from a mortal friend of his. I actually was thinking about John's personality a little bit while I was reading because I really do enjoy connecting with their voice and maybe what their personality is like a little bit. And I thought about um, some of the characters of Peter and Paul. And then I thought about John and John writes with very powerful doctrine and he looks at the big picture. Yes. And I kept thinking about how we talked about reflecting light last week. And it's almost as if John is a reflection of Christ's love. We know that John, this John is... This is the same apostle that when Christ was on the cross, he turned to John and said, John, behold, your, um, 
here's your mother. And he turned to Mary, his mother, and said, woman, here's your son. John is who he entrusted with taking care of his mother. We know that John was translated and that he wanted to stay on the earth and serve, that he is the disciple, John the Beloved, that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so it's interesting to me that this book reflects so much about love and and is that kind of part of his personality that he is able to reflect that light and and that's why he can talk about it so um, deeply. Cause, because um, this is also the same John that in the Gospels quoted um, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and that... Um, that as we turn to Christ, we will receive of his light and come out of any darkness. And so these are themes that he talks about in the gospel too. And we're, we're returning to those in the books of John. Yes. And I feel like he also gives us in these writings in particular, a lot of insight into um, the nature of us as mortals, as children of God and how we are affected by various things as we move through. Again, like you said, I definitely felt that same sense that John was seeing things from a much grander perspective. Um, yes, he could see the whole picture. I correct. Like. And I, I, I appreciate that. We don't very often get the opportunity to see how all the pieces fit together completely. And so it's really, I, I find comforting to see this from this global perspective. I keep seeing John 3.16 in my mind and having a hard time actually stating it. It's that for God so loved so the, the world, world that he sent his, only, his only begotten son. son. Apparently I can see football jerseys in a big field if you watch football. People also the wear. bottom of the in and out cups. In case you want oh, to know. okay. Yes. And so this, <laughs> right. And so John turns us to the concept that because God loved us, he sent his son. And that as we recognize how much love is shown by Christ coming here and that, that Christ, there is the truth of Christ coming down here, receiving a body and sacrificing for all of us, that that is love is a theme that we're going to talk about a lot. So, and I think, and, and I think we're also sort of having our eyes opened even more to, the, to an awareness or an understanding that there is power in love, that love isn't just a sweet, nice thing, but that there is power in it. In fact, the Lord's power comes through love as well in our lives. Absolutely. And so from the beginning, John is addressing that Christianity and what people are associating with it is this is changing, that the apostasy is happening, that at the end of his life, as I stated, John was actually translated. So a lot of the apostles are already dead at this point. So there's a real sense of those of you that are still um, yoked with Christ and have that light of Christ, stay strong, fight the good fight. Um, and, and he's helping them discern how to do this and where to turn for, for strength. But specifically... For instance, if you look at early church art, um, so if you go into a Catholic church that's a few hundred years old, 
you'll often see the combination of maybe Greek mythology intermixed with Christ or Christianity. So Apollo would play a lyre and he was the god of music. And you might see John the Baptist playing a lyre, but he really is Apollo. So you can literally physically see these intermixes of communities that are trying to take cultures from the past and integrate them with new ideas. And so with the apostasy, this is the real challenge in many ways, is that John says from the beginning of the first book of John, Christ literally is the Son of God. He came to earth. He was a mortal. He was, he was born. He was baptized. He suffered. He was crucified. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven. All of this is very literal because the concept of saviors has been throughout cults and religions throughout the world. And that is what their challenge is. Without the apostles and the leadership and the corruption of ordinances and the priesthood, you're starting to get this real mix of Gnosticism and different things that are happening at that time. And so when John starts the book of John, chapter 1, he states that from the beginning, these are the things which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning consent concerning the word of life, that Jesus Christ was real, that we walked with him, and that we saw him crucified, and that that he is truly the son of our father, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And so this personal testimony and this personal witness is very significant for that reason. And I appreciate also, as I, as I read here in this first chapter, I really didn't have all of that sort of, um, I guess, place in time background to what I was reading. But it's interesting how you can juxtapose that reality with what he focuses on. And I think that that's also really instructive for us, that despite everything that's happening in verse 3, he says, "...that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you." that ye may also have fellowship with us, in verse 4, that your joy may be full. And then in verse 7, if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So despite all of the commotion that's going on, John is saying, all are welcome, join, become part of this fellowship and maybe it seems like in a lot of things that he's saying here is that it's not as confusing and complicated as it may seem at first glance, because surely there was a lot of confusion at this time for these saints, given all of this kind of cultural clash that was happening and trying to integrate these new concepts. But I think one of the things that John is teaching here is really the beautiful simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Granted, there's a lot of depth and great, beautiful layers of understanding we can gain. But at its core, I think John is teaching God is light and in him is no darkness in all verse 5. And even verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Very straightforward, clear doctrine. Right. And I would say, you know, he says he invites everyone to to step into light, to walk in the light, and that 
Jesus Christ is light. There is no darkness in him. And he goes back to, I am the light of the world. Um, and that sin um, is darkness. So I liked this ju juxtaposition of, of so throughout this chapter, there's juxtapositions of love and hate, truth and deception, light and darkness. And I liked that John said, basically, there is no in-between, <laughs> which at first seems kind of harsh. But what he's saying is that Jesus Christ is the way. He is the light of the world. It is complicated if you decide not to walk with him. But if you decide to recognize that Jesus Christ is literally light, love, and truth, you can then find the source of love and be tethered to him so that when you have self-deception or deception from Satan, you know where to go, you know where to turn, and you know where to look for the light. And I think another um, interesting juxtaposition that is more inferred is this concept also of fellowship and um, he refers later separating oneself or a falling away, a pulling apart, that that is another um, layer of security that we have is in this fellowship. I um, just kind of want to tie this because of what you just stated to what we talked about a little bit uh, last week. We are currently participating in Light the World. And, you know, if if you haven't started yet, it's very easy to just, start today, start tomorrow. But the Church of Jesus Christ, I think it's churchofchrist.org where you can go straight to Light the World. But I remember when they started the program Light the World and how excited I was that we were in the fellowship of working together, recognizing Christ. It's almost as the come follow me, as everything becomes more unified in the church, you feel that fellowship. It's not that you didn't feel this fellowship before, but it's so much fun to know, oh, you got this text today that suggests maybe, let's see, I just got to, it. To have lunch with somebody new today. To have lunch today. with somebody new. Somebody new. Yes. So it's just such a great fellowshipping because we're being fellowshipped in the light of Christ. I, we talked about Christ's glory last week, and I remember as a little girl thinking Christmas trees were what just brought everybody in the world together and, and brought everyone in this fellowship at Christmas, right? We didn't have light the world, but I remember being a little girl and looking at Christmas trees everywhere and thinking, oh, I get that Christmas trees represent Christ because he has that light that shines off of him, right? And I would go and I would, you know travel through the city and look in people's windows and they all had this Christmas tree and it was shining light and it just reminded me of, of Christ's glory. And, and so at Christmas time, I always felt that way. I felt like when I would see a Christmas tree, we were all brought together in our love for Jesus Christ during Christmas. And so I love that we're now stating that this light is the glory of God, that the light is what can fellowship and bring us together. And as we look for light, as we rec recognize light, as we reflect that light, we can fellowship each other. 
we can strengthen each other and we see the love of God. Um, in Les Mis, there's the line, to love another person is to see the face of God. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. And I always thought, oh, I get that experience. When you're talking to somebody and you really share light, you can see it in their faces. When you connect with somebody and you serve somebody and you really love them, you can see that light kind of enhanced in their life and in their face. And it's that connection of light and truth and love that brings us to the fellowship and help us walk with the Savior. Yes, and that they all connect and are built together. Because the part that stood out to me for Light the World is chapter 2, verse 10 was where I wrote it. But there's this whole section here where, you know, we've got a couple different layers of relationship. We speak about the relationship of the Savior with the Father. And then we speak about our relationship individually with the Savior and the Father and how critical that is. But then we see in verses like 9 through 11-ish that we're talking about now, how does our relationship with the Savior, how is that reflected in our relationship with other people? And so in verse 10, you know, talking about You know, you can't say that you are a person of light and that you believe in the light of the Savior and, like, hate people because those are not compatible with one another. When we feel the love of God, it, and and I have to assume that part of it is because we see people as more than what they are on the surface when we have that love of God inside of us. Um, But in verse 10, uh, John says, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. And that was really what made me think of how all of this connects together. How does thinking about the Savior's physical time here on earth, as we do here at Christmas time, and Him coming and focusing on that light, it's a natural partnership that that would connect to how do we interact with one another and how do we see one another and that as we express that love, we can abide in light. Right. And I, I, I liked the practical nature of chapter two as far as how it seems instructive on how we can do this a little more. Yes. So I like that in chapter two, he starts off as addressing us as little children and that we're addressed as children throughout this. And there may be some literary explanation for it, but I, I appreciate being addressed as a child when we're talking about being dependent on Christ's light because we talk about Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that He is the light of the world. And if we talk about light logistically, oh, we could talk about, fo- oh, I don't want to embarrass myself when it comes to science. Lights are waves and... I don't know, the whole world, literally matter is combined through light, photons, and you can talk about the speed of light, and light is a literal source to connect matter, and um, light is just an incredible source. And who is that source? Christ is aligned with our Father in heaven, and that He is the source of all light. And as children, we are told to be like little children because children are dependent. They're trusting. They're teachable. When you think of a little child lost, you don't think of a little child that is like super resourceful that's like, oh, which way is east in the sun? No, you just see somebody that's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to turn to an adult as soon as I can. I just think of being a child, you are dependent. And so I like that I'm addressed as a child here because I'm reminded that 
I can have greater light in my life as soon as I'm trusting and teachable and willing to just turn to Christ and recognize his atoning sacrifice, recognize that he literally came as the son of God and be obedient to the commandments because that's what it says. Okay, so before you move on from there, I do think that um, as you were talking about being addressed as little children, I wonder if there is a freeing element there because when we think of little children particularly with that phrase little, little children, we don't expect them to be self-sufficient. We don't expect them to figure everything out all by themselves and not need and, and, and to not need us. And so as we think about it in that way, we can recognize that we here on earth, even as full-blown adults, that we are not expected to carry through this mortal experience without needing the Savior in his direction. And I think that there's something really beautiful in that. I think one of our downsides as adults, especially if you are a functional, successful adult, maybe you have an education, maybe you have a successful um, career path, or you have learned how to manage and juggle life very effectively, we it i it seems common among people that i have this conversation with that we have this sense of but i should be able to do it on my own mm-hmm. i should be able to finish all these things i should be able to figure out how to pull this day together i should i should i should and yet we wouldn't expect that of little children right and so i think that's a great explanation of what they're discussing here because it says in verse three if we obey his commandments the one who says i have come to know him does come to know him that it is through obedience to the commandments that we can align ourselves with jesus christ and we don't have to be um all-knowing we can be truly perfected in Christ, that Christ can dwell in us, that we can live the commandments because Christ dwells in us. When we, I talked a few podcasts ago about C.S. Lewis's analogy of how Christ comes and builds a house and that each room, as he dwells in you, you can see the imperfections. You may be in a room that needs, there are cracks where the darkness is coming <coughs> in or there's things that need repair, which you don't see until Christ comes into the room and lets in his light. And so for us to act like, well, I'm going to just do it without Christ is very ineffective. But because Christ is invited, because we bring Christ into our life by being obedient and by being obedient like little children, he allows us to be perfected through him. And he does, the thing about John is he does expect real obedience. So in other words, if you are going, and he also talks about how we love one another, that that is the new commandment. So it's kind of impossible to live this new commandment without being dependent on the Savior. So if we're like driving down the street and somebody just completely cuts in front of us with their car and you have to slam on your brakes. I mean, you're freaked out. Your reaction is most likely, oh, what a horrible driver, right? That is automatically divisive. You've separated yourself from the children of God. You have made a judgment. You have no idea what's going on in their life, but that seems like 
a very human reaction. And the other way that I think that we need the Savior, because, you know, in that situation, we definitely need the Savior to be able to, again, see people beyond the surface. We that we trust that the Lord knows their heart, and we know that the Lord loves them. And so, in some ways, much like a little child, that needs to be enough for us to know that the Lord loves them. But I think also um, it becomes really important and I just totally lost my train of thought but another thought that I had had and we'll see if it connects back up because maybe there's a reason why I lost that train of thought is that oh we need to also have the savior for this new way of living so that we know like as we're looking toward loving our neighbors and our neighbors I mean now in this time that we live in our neighbor is so much more inclusive than I think it has been in any other time of the world our neighbor stretches much beyond where we can walk in five minutes now and so if we are to love our neighbor and to discern among literally as we think about the people we pass in our cars each day or the number of people that are in a store with us at the same moment or that we may encounter um, at a school or wherever that we have to rely on the Savior to know who's who who needs our love, who needs the Savior's light reflected to them at that moment, because there's this whole fabric and tapestry of all of us, you know, it, it because here's the great thing, it's not all on me. Like I personally don't have to figure out how to serve the hundred people that are all in Target at the same time as I am because I'm not the only one in Target. <laughs> like, we, we all working together can connect and reflect light in our own way, but we need the Savior to know how that's supposed to work together. Okay, so several thoughts. First of all, right, there are so many... The, if the commandment is literally to love your neighbor, and John says you cannot deviate from this... You are dependent on the Savior for that because that requires a level of perfection that none of us can have. The skill of empathy is so important. And charity, the pure love of Christ, certainly is connected with empathy. I really appreciated what you just said because our world in general is trying so hard to teach empathy. And because they are not the Savior, they will always fall short because they are the world. And as it states in this chapter that we are not supposed to love the world, we are supposed to love God. And so it is nice. The skill of empathy and understanding empathy is so important. But ultimately, Christ is the one that will tell us how to move forward to serve other people and to love one another. It's so interesting to think of this concept of little children because little children, very little children, developmentally do not have empathy. That is something that developmentally they have to acquire. There's probably special people that do. But in general, developmentally, a lot of people cannot develop that empathy until later in life. It's almost like there's this immaturity in people that other people exist for them. And they need the Savior to come in and show them how to love other people. We are very dependent on the Savior for teaching empathy and to know when to act on empathy to increase light and love in this world. 
And so I'm, I'm supporting what you're saying, but I feel like there's like three different concepts in there that are so important, but yes. And, and, and as you think about that development, you realize that part of that as a, you know, literally as a little child, that's survival, right? As a newborn, you know, go like super basic as a newborn, you're literally dependent on other people for survival. It doesn't really matter if you empathize that your mom is tired, you really actually need food in order to survive. And that somehow along the way, that part of the way that we can develop empathy is also accepting the truth that putting someone else's needs, making someone else's needs a priority and using our faith and our energy and our love to meet someone else's needs in no way diminishes our ability to be cared for ourselves. In fact, I think it uh, it enhances it because Christ comes more and more in our life and right. he will always take care of our needs. So, in or so for me to make this a little more concrete because I want to kind of comment on all those things. You last week talked about if there was one theme we were taking away from everything we've read, it's love. So maybe let's talk about that for a moment. The um, Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is um, trenched in the law of Moses, whereas the New Testament is Christ has now come and has made this accessible to everyone in the world. And we know that in the law of Moses, they were commanded to love their neighbor. But with Christ coming, that loving your neighbor as yourself is very literal because Christ came and he taught them, love one another as I have loved you. This new commandment, love one another. By this shall men know ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. At the Last Supper, he washed the feet of the apostle. And Peter says, you know, don't wash my feet, Savior. You're the Savior. It reminds me of when you didn't want to bring him your, yes. your traumatic experiences. You didn't want to put that on him. And, and Christ says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter says, then please wash every inch of me, right? That's the kind of love we want because Christ, different than the law of Moses, is a literal sacrifice who came up, put himself on the cross, and gave his life for us. And that is the kind of love that the New Testament brings to us, the type where we sacrifice for the Savior, that we show that same love to those around us, that because we love Christ and Christ dwells in us, we can share that level of love by sacrificing our, our time, our talents, our who we are, so that we can be more like the Savior. And we can be more like the Savior because He's dwelling in us, because we, like God and Jesus Christ are one, we can try to be more unified. It's almost like the Savior, by bringing this sort of clarity is opening up this practical experience for us to practice living as he lived. It reminds me of when I went to nursing school and you learn all of these important things that are really critical to the next step. Like, you know, you can't go into a hospital and take care of a patient if you have no underlying uh, theoretical knowledge of what's happening. But you know, at the same time, you can only learn so much from the book. You can only learn so much in the classroom, in the book, and to then think that you could then 
get a job as a nurse and start from there with no practical experience is complete foolishness. There's no way that that can happen. And I have to think that our experience here on Earth is somewhat similar to that in that before we came here, we were in our classroom experience, so to speak, in many ways. We were learning a lot, but there was a lot that there was no that there was no other way that we could gain this experience than by coming here to this earth there was no other way that we could understand how to become like the savior without coming down here and fumbling around maybe having some messy middle or a lot of messy middle and actually trying it how are we going to when placed in this practicum experience try to behave as the savior would okay so i that point i think is what is one of the big themes that takes us through all the books today because so much of it is talking about the apostasy and how many people are dependent on themselves are more interested in satisfying the lust of their body and don't recognize that we've literally come, because that brings us to Jude at the end of this, where we came here to get our bodies to have this experience so that we can become more like Christ, so that we can um, eventually have Christ dwell in us so much that we can stop and say, okay, right now I am not loving this person in front of me. It's someone that I need to love more. Let me ask Christ to come and love this person through me, and we get better and better at that while in our bodies, which makes it so much harder because our minds and spirits may say, I want to love this person, and your body may not be on board with that. But when we turn to the Savior who recognizes what it really feels like to have a body, He can help us become become more like him because we say, please love this person through me. Maybe we become so refined that when somebody cuts us off in traffic, we can literally stop and say, please look, please love this person through me. Oh, this person's having a bad day. I can just reel that in. So it's one of those things that we get more and more refined as we are more and more dependent or more and more aligned with his will. Yes, and as we do that, this really beautiful thing happens for us individually because we're taking the part of us that we had before we came, which is our spirit, and I have to believe our intellect, our, our, our mind, was part of what was with us at that time. And we bring it together with our body, and in, in many ways it's our body that's catching up with things that our spirit has already been taught and already knows. But rather than it being something that sort of takes something away from us by submitting to the to the Savior and his teachings, it actually brings strength and wholeness to us because I I believe and my experience has been that we are stronger, we have more capability, and we feel we have greater capacity to find joy, to have purpose when we are whole within ourselves. And so when our body is in um, in sync or um, working together with what we believe to be true in our minds and what our spirit feels to be true, then that is 
a beautiful power and truly how we abide in the light. Well, and okay, so let's move on to some scriptures that support everything we said, because I think this is so essential to what's being talked about today is that it is the absence of the physicality of the Savior that is the um is, is the emphasis of the apostasy in these books. Because that's, again, what they're saying is that people are becoming confused because they want to take away the fact that Christ really came down here and, and had that body. Um, so, like, Gnosticism is literally just kind of rejecting materialism and trying to get on a, he- a, he- a heavenly plane. And yet we know that the Savior loves matter because he created it and he came here in this body and he experienced those things and so there's something so essential to that experience which i think is um supported by this so we go to talk about more of the antichrist that actually i thought really well with what we discussed last week with um peter is that apostasy is not acknowledging that jesus christ is the literal son of god and the one who will save that he is the light of the world, that faith in Jesus Christ, hope in Jesus Christ, and charity, the pure love of Christ, is all dependent on a Savior who came down here to earth yes, and, 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 and atoned for the sins of the world. Sorry, yes. And I, I really liked how there was, um, I thought that John did such a great job of having such a concise definition. And I appreciate that because I hear the word antichrist and I know it's like right. not a good thing and something that happens in the last days and we need to be wary of. But I appreciated that it was very concise. So in uh, we're in chapter 2, verse 22. Clearly, we've made it very far in the podcast so far. Okay, we're, but we're going to move on. <laughs> chapter 2. He says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. I mean, that's pretty simple. Right. And so I think what you're saying is a lot of us hear the word antichrist and we're thinking of a devil type physical looking f- scary featured person when really it's literally just someone who denies the father and the son. Or just, you know, I didn't even have a specific visual in my head. I just hear it and I think, oh, that's like this this thing that we have to be careful of. But what is it? <laughs> So it was just way more vague to me. And I just thought, oh, that's really simple. And that feels harsh to say that someone is an antichrist if they deny the Savior. And yet, I mean, I guess if you just like, I I guess the word has a lot of connotation to it, that if we just break it back down to the simplicity of what the word means, it's someone who's taking Christ out of our salvation. Uh, Yes. So, and he said, you know how you can discern and you can keep from being confused throughout these times is that you've been anointed by the Holy One and you know um, that he has promised us eternal life. And he kind of talks about the second comforter that Peter talked about, having that more sure word of prophecy that when you have that, that in verse 27, the anointing you have received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, it is true and it is not a lie, just as it has been taught to you, abide in him. So when you get to that stage of where you recognize the sure word of prophecy, you can feel confident that when you feel the Holy Ghost, you are discerning between 
an antichrist and what the Savior wants you to do, in addition to the fact that an antichrist would preach that. So he's giving you ways, he's giving these people ways to survive and stay close to the Savior as the apostasy is happening, which for us, again, like I said, we have leadership now, but it's these things like prayer and a real relationship with the Savior and, and loving one another and serving that keeps us close to God, even, even with our modern day revelation and the resources we do have. And I feel like as we're moving into chapter three, that it's interesting how he repeats in many different ways that following the Savior, like as, you know, I think it's interesting as, as you know, that this time is heading into the apostasy. I think that there is some... Um, similarity or some things that we can really take into our experience now in the last days. But, you know, he specifically speaks about how if we are following the Savior, that most likely we're not going to be understood by the world. The world is not going to accept us. And I always feel like if I know something ahead of time and I'm not caught off guard by it, then it's much easier to plan and deal with. And so for me... I'm the kind of person, like, oh, I'll just lay it out. I like people to be happy with me. I don't like it when people are mad at me or think that I'm dumb or think that I'm wrong. Like, it bugs me. I want to figure out how to connect with people so that we have a common ground and we can have that love. And I think that that's good because it comes back to that loving our neighbor as ourself. But I think that it's also relevant to recognize that there will be times when despite every effort that we've made to show love, to withhold judgment, that there will be times when we are simply not understood in verse. So now we've made big strides. We've moved to chapter three. In, <laughs> in, in verse one, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. So if they can't understand him and, you know, it just keeps going on there. I, I, I feel like this is a theme that pulled up a lot um, in chapter four, verses five and six, they are of the world. Therefore, they sp therefore speak they of the world and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth us not. Right. And this goes back to this, this theme that I found in chapter three, which was that we are children of God. We have a divine heritage and people are not going to be comfortable with with recognizing that they are children of God and that they have the potential to be like him. Because if you don't know who to turn to, that is very hard. I was going to say, why do you think that that is challenging? Because it feels very intuitive for me to hear that and to recognize, and maybe that's just a spiritual gift that that feels intuitive to me, that, uh, that, there, that there is a greater light than myself that I can turn to and rely on and that will teach me and guide me and that has a plan already for how this is going to work out. Right. And I think that when you're very, when you're dependent on the Savior and you know He is the way and that He is the only way, that becomes easier. But there, it goes back to that sense of, but I can figure things out for myself, mm. too, that makes it hard. So if somebody pulls in front of you in traffic and you completely flip out on them, you go, oh, I, there's nothing divine about me. There's nothing godlike about me. This is a bunch of bunk, and you guys are just stressing me out by the fact that I have to keep trying to be like this. That's just stressful for me. 
but and 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 also a lot of it I think has to do with verse 11 and 12. Um, verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning so that we might love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brother's actions were righteous. It states that we know they're, they're, they're who they are by the fruits of their labors. We know by their works. We, if someone is truly righteous, if somebody is dwelling with the Savior, if somebody is walking in the light, we will see that in their actions. And so people recognize that. They're like, my actions are not consistent with this, right? This is very hard for me. I don't know how to change. But it says here um, in verse 16, but this we know love because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And 17, those um, that close their hearts against him, how does God's love abide in him? 18, little children, let us not love in word and speech, but in action and truth. And you know what I thought of when I read all of this? Whenever I kind of think about pain. Just kidding. I think of Michelle. The truth is that Elder Holland said it well in his talk, are we not all beggars or are we all beggars? I remember him stating, I may not be my brother's keeper, but I am my brother's brother. And when I see the wants of many... There, but for the grace of God, go I, or something to that extent. Um, Which is such a beautiful way to think about that. When you were speaking, I was thinking about, because I was picturing this tension, and I have felt that tension before of, so when you were speaking of being in the car, and you react badly because we're human, and we do react badly sometimes. And so we think, well, Forget it. There's all these things that I'm expected to be and do, and I'm supposed to just, like, turn the other cheek, and I'm supposed to just, like, smile and wave happily at people who are doing these rude things. And and I think that that wears you down, and at some point, that feels like such a heavy burden to live, like, the expectation of living with all of these Uh, requirements and all of these instructions can feel like such a heavy burden. And I think that the reason why it can feel that way is when we're trying to sort of, it's like we're trying to do both. We're trying to live the Savior's law and do it ourselves. Right. And when we're doing it that way, it is impossible. It's impossible. It is like the worst of both worlds. We're doing all the work and we're trying to live like the Savior without the Savior's love to strengthen us and that's not even possible to do so of course it's discouraging and hard and we feel despair and we feel in some cases even disgusted with ourselves Mm -hmm. and it's easy to see why people would want to step out from under that and just step away from it and say this feels bad and I don't like it and I want to step away and I feel like so what what is the the key, the transition? And I don't think it's an accident that John and Peter have spent this time building up here talking about love. That first, like the first thing we need to do is to build that connection to the Savior and feel his love. Mm-hmm. And when we can feel his love, then we can begin following his gospel plan. Because to try and do it the other way around is setting ourselves up to feel just terrible. 
So let's um, move to the end of chapter four because that gets us to chapter five because four is all about God is love. Um, by this, the love of God is manifest in us that this is his plan. He loved us and he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It all goes back to the literal nature of the atonement. When you say, how do we do this? It is impossible without the atonement. But guess what? That's why we have the atonement. Right. It was designed that way. Right. This is the plan. When you are frustrated, it is the plan so that you go, oh, wait, this is the plan. It's almost like there's a maze that we're going through and there's dead ends. You try and do it yourself, dead end. You're like, oh. And it's because there's only one path back to the Father, and it's actually a kindness and part of our Savior's grace that there are dead ends, because if not, we'd get off on some crazy weird path that would never lead us back to the Father. Right, and so in, in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment, is what I have here. Hmm. Um, that people are so worried because they're like, I'm not doing it right. I must be a bad person because I'm feeling worse and worse and worse, which is kind of what you were addressing. Yes. But guess what? That doesn't come from the pure love of Christ. That comes from us trying to figure it out instead of being born on the sea. But born of God, literally born again, is what he's talking about in chapter 5 to end this. He goes, yes. We have made all these statements. It's very black and white. Either you're walking with the Savior or you're not. Let me teach you what to do. It is not where you come up with some new philosophy. It is where you literally acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that He is the light of the world, that He is the way, that there is no other way, that His yoke is easy and His burden is light because... This is what chapter 5 said. When we love God and keep His commandments, that is love. Keeping His commandments and us being obedient is how we stay tethered to the Savior. Verse 4, everyone that has been born of God conquers the world because you were born again. That we have victory to overcome the world because we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The inverse power of what our world thinks, where you become stronger and stronger and your words are savvier and savvier and you have more money and you have more influence, worldly influence, that is not what this is about at all. This is about being dependent on the Savior who is the Redeemer and who atoned for the world. He says, the Spirit is the one who testifies that will let us know what, what we need to do. And then he talks about the literalness of the sacrifice. So starting in verse 7. Okay, so I just want to jump in there in two and maybe read my version only because, yes, I don't sure. know, I just really like it. There's a few things I wish you'd um, so in So now we're in First John chapter 5, and he says in verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world even our faith. And I just thought that was really beautiful, that through our faith. And in the margin, I felt like chapter 5 in many ways is talking about light overcomes. Mm -hmm. There are many obstacles, and for each of us, those look a little different. But the universality is we all have obstacles, and that light overcomes. And I just thought that was, again, so inspired and so uplifting and encouraging to know that that is just truth. So verse four for me says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 
our faith in Jesus Christ allows all of this to happen. That's when his grace comes in and is sufficient for what we need. Then he says in verse 7, So, these are the three things that testify of the Savior, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. If we accept the testimony that God is that of God, the testimony of God um, that he gave concerning his son. Verse 10, the one who believes in the son of God has the testimony himself. Verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So, for eternal life, we have these three things. We have the spirit, the water, and the blood. Um, in verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Okay, so he's saying this over and over again, and the point is this. Do not take the literal sacrifice of what Christ did where he came down to earth. He descended from his throne as God. He was born into the world through water, um, that his spirit became united with a real body, and that he sacrificed himself on the cross with his blood. The reason why it's so simple and so complicated at the same time is this is true. It's been true from the beginning to the end. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ are faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. These principles of Jesus Christ are his gospel, and it's saying it right here, that we have to have faith in Jesus Christ that as we repent and exercise the blood that he sacrificed in his atonement, we are baptized through the water and partaking the sacrament weekly, and that our spirits and bodies will be connected through the gift of the Holy Ghost, and that it can dwell in us, and that we can have the Spirit of Christ with us. This is the, these are the first principles of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the answer, and we're told it all the time, but literally saying, I need to apply this all the time in my life to be walking in his light is something we can work on more and more. When Christ was on the cross, he said it is finished. His spirit left. Then the blood and the water were taken from his side when, this, when he was um, on the cross. These, these are symbolic of, of what we need to be thinking about all the time and, and applying to our lives for us to have eternal life. Yes, and I think also to recognize, I think I appreciate using these very visceral and easy to visualize things like water and blood as a reminder that this is real. The Savior walked on the earth. He sacrificed his physical body. He sacrificed his will. And that because that is really real, the power and the help that we get is really real and the enabling um transforming ability we have to live in light is also real isn't that why we are commanded also to love one another for many reasons but we want to see that physical manifestation of the truthfulness of this and as we serve each other that that manif i think that manifests in a way that we can physically wrap our minds around too. Yes, I remember there there have been some periods in my life where there feels like 
the darkness was just trying to come in like it was coming in hot there was a lot of it and seeing the physicality of people being light in my life and serving and extending faith and they were the importance of that mm, contrast and also a vivid reminder that despite whatever else is happening that there is good and there is light in the world and I was blessed to recognize because I think many of us across the world recognize that there there is good and there is light in the world but I was blessed to be able to recognize one step further because of the savior because of the savior there is goodness and there is light in the world and there is my safety right and I think that sometimes we get to act for the Savior or to be acted on by other people um, that typify the Savior as they guide us in our darkness. There's just really, when you start thinking about it, the, the typifying of the Savior and His light is in everything. Even literally stepping outside and, and feeling that light on you, the more we interact with the world around us, the more we interact with people, I think that light manifests. And so the, the next two letters, uh, let's just touch on them and say that in this world that they're living in where apostasy is imminent and real, that these are nice examples of people that he says it makes it brings me so much joy that you are still loving one another, that you are walking in the commandments because this is how we can fortify ourselves against um, personal apostasy is charity and literally serving other people, not being caught up in ourselves, which is kind of the point, the last point we we're just making is that we in and of ourselves do not expose ourselves to light. But as we extend ourselves and as we do the work, we have more light in our life. So it's interesting that we finish with Jude. And when I say we finish with Jude, we almost finish the New Testament with Jude. We have Revelation, which is, I don't know, I've always heard of it referred to as just an apocalyptic work. So that's going to be a different ending to the New Testament than talking about these principles of, I don't know, I haven't read it in its fullness, but um, it'll be... Soon to be just, changed, Laura. Right, Soon I'm to be so changed. Excited. So it's interesting to see um, how the apostasy and these same principles really are reinforced in Jude. Apparently, he's writing this letter to a community that they are not checking their sins anymore. Jude, uh, for people that don't know, is the brother of James, potentially making him the brother of Jesus. It's interesting, though, that he's not necessarily apostle. It make, an apostle. It makes me wonder if there's fewer and fewer real leaders out there. And so this is Jude talking to these last group of people. But he talks about, like, a lot of situations in the Old Testament and and specifically about unbridled lust that is a problem now. And it talks about, he states that he wants to write this to encourage the members to contend for the faith that is entrusted to the saints. And I love that. I did put, I just want to say, I found a couple of words you could substitute in the word fight 
fight for the faith, mm-hmm. or even the word claim, which I really like. Claim your faith. Fight for your faith. And as you fight or claim something, it's strengthened. You can contend for fights. Your personal testimony can be strengthened as you extend that faith. He states that, and, and it's just interesting to me, um, it might be something that if you're just into the scholarly ideas of this to look into, but he refers to the first estate as in the first estate in the plan of salvation, which I always think it's interesting when you're reading the New Testament and you're like, oh, look, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doctrine right there that Joseph Smith received revelation for, which people don't know what it is. But Jude says it right here that in verse 6, um, what, what does yours say for verse 6? The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Right. And so I have that they, they didn't keep their own dominion. And so dominion hmm. over their physicality, whatever it was, they did not get bodies to come down here to earth. Those of us that did get bodies, please... Keep those lusts bridled, is what Jude is saying. In verse 8, he, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah and, and these examples of those that are denying the source of their dominion. And so this is my point about the light. In order for you to have light, there's a source. And when we separate ourselves from that source, where do we get power? It's like a light bulb. If you don't have a source, it's not anything. It's an empty vessel, right? And when we choose... I, I, I was going to say, and that is like in verse 12. I don't know if that's where you're referencing from here. But I, I really thought this imagery, I thought it was a little confusing when I first read it. And then once I thought of it in this way, this was one way for me to think about it. I really liked it. And the concept was that there's no substance to what the world has to offer. Yeah. So that the um, it says um, clouds mm-hmm. they are without water, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit. It reminds me of that light bulb you were talking about. Right. All it is is this fragile glass thing that really can serve no purpose. Maybe in some odd art or beautiful art, depending. Mm-hmm. True. But as <laughs> but in terms of fulfilling why it is there. Just like the tree is there to produce this fruit, the clouds can bring the rain to nourish the earth, that without the source of light, that light bulb cannot fulfill its purpose. Yes, that, that is what I was thinking. And, and, and in verse 8, he talks about that those that are not relying on the source are relying on their own wants. They're, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they slander the glorious one. This is what a person looks like without the source that brings light into the world. And I I did. I loved clouds without water, trees without fruit. Because again, a cloud without water has no meaning. A tree without fruit. But I really loved wandering stars for whom the depth of eternal darkness has been kept. A star without light, a star without a source isn't a star. So... I, I, I appreciated that. So this is where we get the ability to serve each other and love one another is that self-mastery of our bodies. Again, the point we were making about our bodies is that when we know who the source is, 
these bodies can have Christ dwell in them and can become perfected and sanctified and purified through the Savior. Um, And so he ends with talking about these people, verse 16, that are complainers, discontent, who go around pursuing their own desires. When we are separated from the source, we are self-deceptive. Satan easily can get to us. But we also, he doesn't even have to get to us. We're not connected to a source. We can go around deceiving ourselves all the time that the words that come straight out of our mouth are justified. We do it all the time when we are not connected to the source who helps us step into other people's shoes, recognize that we're all children of God, and keep us connected. So, uh, they and he said in the last days this will get more and more distinct that 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 people in general will act on ungodly desires that they'll be divisive people devoid of the spirit so he teaches us in the closing few verses to keep ourselves in god's love waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life and have mercies on and have mercy on those who separate themselves he wants us to keep serving no matter what the situation is and save others by snatching them from, from the fire. Have mercy coupled with respect. Hating even the clothing defiled by the flesh, we can still dislike the, the sin, but remember these are all the children of God, and he wants us to love one another. To the one who is able to guard you, this is verse 24, to the one who is able to guard you from falling and to cause you to stand without blemish before his glorious presence while rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and in the present and for all eternity. Amen. Well, that is a good amen. That is a great amen. But, and and I just want to add in, in my translation, because I just thought the imagery, and I think that yours is similar, but I just grew a little attached to mine. I think the imagery here is so beautiful because it's directing our focus once again back to the savior who is able to in in verse 24 who is able to keep you from falling and i just love that and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy and that is for sure what i desire and how do we get that to keep from falling and to be presented faultless and to have this capacity for exceeding joy by turning and focusing on the savior well and i love that you shared that that my mind says his glorious presence while rejoicing that that he will present us but i love the idea of exceeding joy because this is what it really goes back to even though the Heavenly Father is the source of all light. Jesus Christ is our mediator and our advocate. And if we turn to the Savior, He will present us to God with exceeding joy. Because He will rejoice in the fact that that is what we chose to do. He was anointed from the beginning to do this mission, that the atonement was something he had to do that we know was hard for him. The fact that we want to participate in that gift and receive it and use it brings him exceeding joy and he will be very happy to present us at that time not because we're perfect right but because we've been made perfect in the savior jesus christ because i think that i was definitely my thoughts were going that direction in that the joy won't be because we somehow managed to do it all perfectly the joy will be that we chose the light 
Yes, and we chose to step into light. Right. I really like that. So yeah. um totally want to end with this this um, scripture, because it's beautiful. Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and in the present and for all eternity. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Laura.